Welcome to the Talberg Foundation podcast series, New Thinking for a New World. Host Alan Stoga welcomes leaders from around the world to explore the issues that are challenging and changing their societies. From climate change to democracy under siege to geopolitics and beyond, we are looking for ideas that can make all our lives better. 2020 will probably be remembered as the year of COVID. But perhaps more importantly to our collective futures, it's the year that saw the emergence of the scientist as an accepted, necessary player in public policymaking. Probably not since Sputnik and the space race have scientists and science been so visible in the halls of power. My guest today has long worked at the intersection of science, politics, and policy. Dr. Ali Nouri, a molecular biologist, is the president of the Federation of American Scientists. Welcome, Dr. Nouri. Pleasure to be with you, Alan. Let's start with the pandemic, which is now at least a year old and maybe even older as we're beginning to, to get stories from what really happened last year. In any event, from a scientific point of view, as we end 2020, where are we in terms of understanding, treating, and preventing future outbreaks of COVID-19? You know, you know in, in many ways, uh, the, 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 there is a public recognition of the importance of science in dealing with challenges. Uh, what, what we have seen during this pandemic is, is that the United States, uh, which is really the world's leading power when it comes to science and technology, failed to implement science and evidence-based policies in curbing the COVID-19 pandemic. What I mean by that is we have seen two separate things during this pandemic. On the one hand, we've seen this remarkable speed toward the development of a vaccine, which is really unprecedented. I mean, within a week of having that virus, scientists were able to sequence the genome, quickly get to work on uh, understanding its pathogenesis, and subsequently working toward building a vaccine. And just a year later, we are on the verge of the FDA potentially approving two, maybe three of these vaccines, a process that normally takes years, if not decades. That's quite remarkable, and it's really testament to the advances in science and technology in, 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 in the country. But on the other hand, where we have really failed as a country is, is and, 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 and we're not alone here, many others uh, have, have also failed in their response, is to take what we know about science and evidence and apply those lessons to public policy, um, to things like the effectiveness of face coverings, the effectiveness of masks, the importance of indoor ventilation, um, uh, those kinds of things. And, 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 and it's really because of the latter, because of our inability to apply science and evidence uh, to public health, uh, that we are in the predicament that we are today. Let's stay there for a second. What are the big lessons that you as a scientist and you as a policy guy take away from this year of both success, the vaccine story you just told, and failure, the 
basic public health story you just told? Well, I think the lesson from the vaccine success story that I take away is that decades of investments in the National Institutes of Health, the National Science Foundation, this incredible system of universities and research institutions across this country that is funded by the taxpayers is incredibly important and has incredible dividends um, when it comes to producing products like antivirals, like monoclonal antibodies, like vaccines, uh, that will ultimately help end this pandemic. So it's a perfect example of why those public dollars, public investments are so important. And we really need to continue that. We really need to continue investing in our science and technology endeavor. The other lesson that we draw from this is one that has to do more with communication. How policymakers communicate uh, public health information and science-based information to the public. That's really the area where, where we have failed. Um, and, and, and what we see when we look at countries that got it right and brought the pandemic under control versus ones that did not and struggled, a key difference between those two countries, it appears, is effective, transparent, communication from trusted sources to the public. Because at the end of the day, if you don't trust the source or the message that's telling you to wear a mask, social distance, have closures of schools or restaurants, ventilate indoor spaces, if you don't trust those basic messages, you cannot bring this virus under control. And that's been a challenge for us. And that's the part we really need to address going forward. And I think a lot of it will be about combating misinformation and disinformation. That's going to be a critical lesson for us to learn and to address going forward. Another aspect of that problem in the United States is that this country has for decades been known as a distrusting country. That is to say, every global survey of trust in institutions has pretty consistently ranked the U.S. towards the distrust end of the spectrum, pretty consistently ranked the Asian countries towards the trust area of the spectrum. How do you combat what the WHO calls an infodemic? That's, I mean, I, I think you really put your finger on the issue. Uh, as the WHO has said, we're not just fighting a pandemic, we're also fighting an infodemic. Because in the last year, we've really lived in a world in which we haven't had pharmaceutical intervention, and we've had to rely on these non-pharmaceutical interventions, which is essentially things we talked about, masks and public health and hygiene and ventilation, so on and so forth. Uh, those things only work through effective communication. And when you're operating in an ecosystem that's filled with misinformation and disinformation, it's very difficult to get people to adopt those basic measures. They're low-tech measures, but they're highly effective. And as you said, in countries where they've worked, particularly uh, in East Asian countries uh, and some others, Australia and New Zealand, uh, these, these countries have done a terrific job as well. Um, it, it's been places where 
People have trusted that public health messaging from their institutions. So what do we need to do going forward? Um, I think we really have to think about how to rebuild that trust. Uh, I mean, what we saw during this pandemic um, was an erosion of trust not just with respect to CDC and FDA and other health-related institutions, but also the scientific community and others writ large. There's just an increasingly mistrust in certain segments of our society today when it comes to listening to experts. And there's reasons behind that. Uh, you know, for, for one thing, it did not help to go through a pandemic the likes of which we have not seen in 100 years in an election season, in a presidential election season. Because what we know is that whatever issue is on the table during an election season, the issue will, get, uh, will, will become a partisan one. And that's what we saw here. We saw the scientists and the public health folks uh, pushing for more public health mitigation strategies and uh, we saw, you know, segments of society that are more more interested in reopening and uh, the view that, you know, the, the economy has to uh, start running again, even if we don't have the virus under control or, you know, concerns regarding personal liberty. Those individuals sort of formed a different camp. And so the debate became very partisan. And and that's the perfect ecosystem um, for for misinformation and disinformation to thrive, part of what we need to do going forward, and if, if if I if I put my policymaker cap back on, is we really need a national strategy to fight misinformation when it comes to health related issues. Right, we have this in many ways when it comes to disinformation coming from abroad. Right, in in 2016, for example, after we saw what the uh, Russians and others were able to do when it came to sowing discord within our political system and influencing uh, the election through misinformation and disinformation, in many ways we responded to that. We, we shored up uh, mechanisms in the State Department, in the Department of Homeland Security, our intelligence services, and, and we were ready for it. The country was ready for that disinformation. And so it just did not have as much of an impact in the 2020 election. Similarly, I think we need to set up structures uh, within the Department of Health and Human Services, within CDC, within our health agencies, to actively detect, deter disinformation and to do a much more active job of putting solid science-based public health information to the public. One consequence of the misinformation and, as you said, disinformation of the past year has been a growing skepticism about vaccines. When I was growing up, vaccines weren't controversial. You got polio vaccines, you got tetanus vaccines, uh, you got smallpox vaccines. They become controversial. Is it because we were complacent, those diseases disappeared? Is it because we don't trust our doctors and our science? And does it matter why? Because we've got to solve this. How do you get people to take vaccines here and elsewhere 
if we're going to stop this uh, this particular coronavirus in its tracks? That that is the major question going forward. Uh, December tenth is the date that the Food and Drug Administration and its advisory board uh, is going to be analyzing data from the Moderna vaccine shortly after data from the Pfizer vaccine. I mean, and again, as we discussed previously, it's quite remarkable and so encouraging that these these entities have been able to uh, to put put forward uh you know, highly efficacious vaccines if those, you know, 90% or higher figures that they've reported live up to uh, scrutiny by the scientific community. So that's really all wonderful news. But then the question is, will people take it? And, and, and you're absolutely right, Alan, in the U.S. vaccine hesitancy is astonishingly high. In, in, in one of the recent polls, it was around 50% uh, who expressed uh, Disinterest uh, in, in in taking a vaccine, and when you consider the fact that at least sixty percent or more of the population would have to be vaccinated for us to achieve herd immunity, um, those kinds of uh, vaccine hesitancy numbers are frighteningly high, and so we really have the work cut out for us. Um, and 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 you know it's challenging. I think part of it is, yeah, we've just forgotten the miracle of vaccines. And and we have to remind people and we have to educate individuals um, how these vaccines work. I think just walking people through the process of how your body establishes um, an immune response against the vaccine uh, goes a long way in, in alleviating uh people's fears of the unknown, if they actually understand how it works. So, so I think we need a campaign to, to educate people, not just that these vaccines are effective, but how they're effective. What is the scientific mechanism behind it? Um, I, think, I think as scientists, we have to share these stories um, better with the public. And, you know, we, we have to remind the public that we had these these horrible diseases like smallpox that, you know, a lot of people who were born in the late 70s and the 80s don't know about. But smallpox killed 500 million people in the 20th century, more than all wars combined. And we need to remind people that that was one of humankind's uh, one of science's biggest gifts to humanity, really, was the development and the distribution of the smallpox vaccine to bring that scourge to an end. Um, so, so part of it is just that, you know, that, that public campaign and public education. But, but the other part of it is, the other challenge is, as you pointed out, anyone on social media with a mega microphone um, can spread misinformation and disinformation. And that is, a, that is a huge problem that we really haven't faced in the past, right? In the past, we had several trusted television channels that people went to for their source of information. Today, not only do they have you know, cable TV that segments their interests, 
um, based on political preference, but people increasingly up to uh, 50% of news, for example, that they receive is not coming from social media. And so, so, so that means if, if you're an effective spreader of misinformation and disinformation on social media, you can cause some serious damage. And, and so we, we really have to do a better job of tracking which kinds of audiences are vulnerable to that disinformation. And we have to actively engage those audiences, get them good information, and inoculate them, if you will, to use an analogy to the vaccine, inoculate them against bad information that may be coming their way in the future. I think that's going to be how you combat misinformation, disinformation going forward. I have to ask you a question that I've asked other scientists, and they mostly refuse to answer it. The last truly global devastating pandemic was 100 years ago, the Spanish flu, much worse than COVID. Is this something that once we get through it, we can forget about it for another 100 years? Are there reasons to believe that the intensity or the frequency, not intensity, might continue to increase? Might increase. I think there are reasons to believe that they are, will increase in frequency, and 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 here's why. And here's why I believe that uh, these pandemics tend to be zoonotic in origin, right? They they start in some remote animal reservoir that we don't interact with often, um, but then the virus jumps from one species to humans. It undergoes some adaptation in humans, then it starts getting transmitted from human to human and, 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 and develops uh, pandemic, pandemic capacities. Um, as we encroach more and more into those animal populations, so, so as we encroach more and more into the wild through deforestation, for example, um, in other ways uh, of expanding, you know, human population and and our hunger for resources, uh, we become increasingly in close contact with these animals that we haven't historically uh, been in contact with, and that provides more and more opportunities for these novel viruses that we haven't seen before, and therefore we don't have immunity against, to jump into human populations and create problems for us. Uh, this is what we see with the flu, this, with influenza. This is, uh, for example, the swine flu is a good example. Uh, this is what we see with, um, with uh, the initial SARS, which came from bats, the current SARS-CoV-2, which probably came from bats, uh, the MERS virus, another coronavirus, which is a camel virus. Uh, we see this even with Ebola, uh, which 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 probably originated in fruit bats that also um, that also infects primates and as we increasingly uh, degrade the planet degrade the natural resources encroach into these um, into these wildlife territories we will be increasingly uh, vulnerable to to these outbreaks uh, so 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 I think there is an important lesson there that one, we really need to think about our relationship with natural resources. Um, and two, we need to do a much better job of disease surveillance. Uh, so we need to do a better job of 
looking at various uh, pathogens, whether it's in a cave in China or in the in the forests of Uganda. We need to have a much better uh, mechanism of of surveying what is out there so that we can understand uh, where the vulnerabilities might be. The second thing I'll say, Alan, is that we also have to remember that these diseases are not going to just be occurring in natural reservoirs. They could also be developed in a laboratory. And, and, and here I'm talking about the potential for bioterrorism and the development of biological weapons, uh, because we do know that biosciences are advanced enough now to the point where scientists, uh, expert researchers, um, and quite frankly, increasingly, the technology has become so sophisticated that the requisite know-how is threshold is lower and lower. But we do know that individuals have, now have the capability to develop these sorts of viruses in a laboratory. The technology is there, even though I don't believe this current pandemic originated in a lab. Um, all evidence points that it did come from the wild. But going forward, I do believe we need to address the possibility that a uh, future pathogen with pandemic potential could be developed nefariously in a laboratory. And we do have to address that uh, possibility. That is unfortunately a great way to segue to ethics. And there, there's several dimensions there. One is obviously distribution. We saw the problems with PPE at the start of the uh, pandemic, both within the United States, between countries, between regions. It is still the case that most African countries do not have access to adequate PPE uh, to cope with this thing. Uh, but also with regard to rolling out the vaccination, the, the uh, vaccines as the vaccines become available. How is a scientist and a policy guy, but one sitting in Washington, D.C., uh, how do you think about the ethics of coping with this pandemic, which after all is global, uh, but we tend to solve it at a national level or to address it at a national level? You're absolutely right. It, this is a global pandemic. Uh, the virus doesn't recognize borders. So, so whether you want to protect, um, protect your population um, through mitigation measures, uh, through vaccines, uh, you really do have to look at this in a global context. Um, you know, I, I imagine what's going to happen here is simply because of a combination of Domestic politics, um, as well as the as well as the fact that taxpayers did really, uh, in many ways, underwrite the development of uh, these therapeutics and these vaccines, um, and and not just in the last year, but really over years and even decades of funding our bioscience um, research institutions across the country, again, through things like the National Institute of Health, National Science Foundation, um, because this was really an effort that would not be possible without uh, that support uh, from taxpayers. Uh, in that sense, I do believe that the, the U.S. population 
would be the first uh, to receive the vaccine um, before we can distribute it to um, other uh, other countries that uh, you know may may not be as fortunate. Um, that is just, I think, a reality uh, that we're going to see. However, if there is a lesson in this pandemic, is that the current framework that we have when it comes to distributing these vaccines, when it comes to distributing the PPE, uh, when it comes to distributing the, the, the various uh, tools that we have, is grossly insufficient in meeting that global demand. And, and so we really do need to develop better structures to not just make the United States more resilient, but really to make uh, the world more resilient. Um, one of those structures is, of course, you know, strengthening the role of the World Health Organization, uh, which we have really walked away from at least last year and a half. And that's been, a, in my opinion, a big mistake uh, because as the various flaws that the World Health Organization or any large bureaucratic uh, entity uh, might have, they're there to serve a very important purpose. And that purpose is to particularly uh, support the needs of um, much of the developing world uh, with you know, critical uh, healthcare infrastructure and healthcare needs. And we really need to be supporting that effort, strengthening that effort, working with friends, working with allies uh, to, to, to shore up those defenses. Because again, at the end of the day, we are all part of the same global population, and that virus does not recognize countries. It does not recognize races. It does not recognize ethnicities. We're all in it together. Let's end by circling back to where we started, which is the role of the scientists in policymaking. What is the optimum role from your point of view? Advisor, policymaker, legislator? Well, well, Alan, I think at the very least, we need more science and evidence in public policy. Uh, at the moment, when you look at the U United States Congress, we have 535 members serving in the House and the Senate. Only three of those have a PhD in a biological, physical, science, or math. Three out of 535. Uh, on the other hand, roughly 50% have a law degree. And the reason for that is because law schools have done a very good job of educating their students about the importance of working in public policy. They've established programs to uh, help first-year, second-year law students do internships and clerkships in Congress, so on and so forth. PhD programs, the programs that are training uh, students to become scientists, don't really think about public policy as a career track for those graduate students. And I think as we increasingly are confronted with challenges, public policy challenges that require scientific input, evidence-based input, things like the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, climate change. Uh, these, are, these are the challenges of today and the future that will require scientific expertise and input. And I think we really have to do a better job of getting scientists from those graduate schools 
to work as staff members in those legislative offices or to run for offices themselves. I think we have to work on the entire ecosystem uh, and, and, and make sure that scientists and the science community is at the table and that their voices are heard. In fairness, there may also be another problem. Most scientists I know think they are obligated to follow their research wherever it takes them. They don't want to think about ethics. They don't want to think about policy. Isn't that a problem? There, there is this issue, of course, um, that, that science or technology uh, taken to its extreme potential can result in some pretty major risks, right? I mean, the, the perfect example is uh, the Manhattan Project, right, back in uh, the 40s when a group of physicists um, got together with material scientists and engineers and uh, with, the, with the support of the federal government, developed the atom bombs. Um, that was, a, in many ways, a product of science, right, product of physics. And similarly, uh, uh, today and tomorrow, the century of, as we're living in the century of biology, there's certainly lots of potentially nefarious applications um, that the biosciences um, can possibly bring to the table in the way of creating designer pathogens against which, for example, we don't have a vaccine. Or, or designer children, or designer animals, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. That's right. And, 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 so, and so I think, you know, to, to, to make sure that, I mean, this is a, this is a very important question you're raising, uh, because we do have to really walk this uh, fine line of making sure we're maximizing the benefits of science, while at the same time mitigating these risks. So, you know, we, we, we don't want to apply science to designer kids. We don't want to apply science to deadly pathogens. But at the same time, we don't want to put so many onerous restrictions on the scientists and their craft that will get in the way of developing a vaccine in record time against the pandemic, right? So it's this challenge. And, 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 and you know, we have some mechanisms to do that. So, for example, there are federal advisory committees and boards uh, that engage and advise individuals in the National Institutes of Health and these other, you know, funding bodies um, that, that develop standards, right? Uh, for example, NIH does not fund any research that could potentially go toward designer kids. Um, so we have decided as a community, as a country, that that is not ethical. My only concern there, of course, is that knowledge like pathogens don't respect borders and scientists have the wonderful habit of sharing their information through journals, conferences, etc. So it's one thing for a national community in the United States or elsewhere to decide that they're not going to pursue a particular path. But once that genie is out of the bottle, the genie is out of the bottle. Thank you very much for joining us today. I want to come back in, in the future and, and push further on this, these sets of ethical questions around biology. 
and the future of biology. And I hope you'll be able to join us. I would love to. Thanks so much, Alan. It was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments on our website, talbergfoundation.org. And please subscribe to the podcast in the app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.